Chapter thirty five, part one of The Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter thirty five With Malice Aforethought, part one. Town lay twelve straight miles before the lover and his sweetheart when they came to the brow of the last long hill. All beneath them was like a map neither man nor beast distinguishable, but the veined and tinted image of a country, knobs and flats set out in order clearly, shining extensive and motionless in the sun. It opened on the side of the lovers as they reached the sudden edge of the tableland, where since morning they had ridden with the head of neither horse ever in advance of the other. At the view of their journey's end, the Virginian looked down at his girl beside him, his eyes filled with a bridegroom's light, and, hanging safe upon his breast, he could feel the gold ring that he would slowly press upon her finger to-morrow. He drew off the glove from her left hand, and, stooping, kissed the jewel in that other ring which he had given her. The crimson fire in the opal seemed to mingle with that in his heart and his arm lifted her during a moment from the saddle as he held her to him. But in her heart the love of him was troubled by that cold pang of loneliness which had crept upon her like a tide as the day drew near. None of her own people were waiting in that distant town to see her become his bride. Friendly faces she might pass on the way, but all of them new friends, made in this wild country. Not a face of her childhood would smile upon her, and deep within her a voice cried for the mother who was far away in Vermont. That she would see Mrs. Taylor's kind face at her wedding was no comfort now. There lay the town in the splendor of Wyoming's space. Around it spread the watered fields, westward for a little way, eastward to a great distance, making squares of green and yellow crops and the town was but a poor rag in the midst of this quilted harvest. After the fields to the east, the tawny plain began, and with one faint furrow of river lining its undulations, it stretched beyond sight. But west of the town rose the Bowleg Mountains, cool with their still unmelted snows and their dull blue gulfs of pine. From three canyons flowed three clear forks which began the river. Their confluence was above the town a good two miles, it looked but a few paces from up here, while each side the river straggled the margin cottonwoods, like thin borders along a garden walk. Over all this map hung silence like a harmony, tremendous yet serene. "'How beautiful! How I love it!' whispered the girl. "'But, oh, how big it is!' And she leaned against her lover for an instant. It was her spirit seeking shelter. Today, this vast beauty, this primal calm, had in it for her something almost of dread. The small, comfortable, green hills of home rose before her. She closed her eyes and saw Vermont, a village street, and the post office, and ivy covering an old front door, and her mother picking some yellow roses from a bush. At a sound her eyes quickly opened and here was her lover turned in his saddle, watching another horseman approach. She saw the Virginian's hand in a certain position, and knew that his pistol was ready. 
but the other merely overtook and passed them as they stood at the brow of the hill. The man had given one nod to the Virginian, and the Virginian one to him, and now he was already below them on the descending road. To Molly Wood he was a stranger, but she had seen his eyes when he nodded to her lover, and she knew, even without the pistol, that this was not enmity at first sight. It was not, indeed. Five years of gathered hate had looked out of the man's eyes, and she asked her lover who this was. "'Oh,' said he, easily, "'just a man I see now and then.' "'Is his name Trampas?' said Molly Wood. The Virginian looked at her in surprise. "'Why, where have you seen him?' he asked. "'Never till now, but I knew.' "'My gracious, you never told me you had mind-reading powers.' And he smiled serenely at her. "'I knew it was Trampas as soon as I saw his eyes.' "'My gracious,' her lover repeated with indulgent irony. "'I must be mighty careful of my eyes when you're looking at them.' "'I believe he did that murder,' said the girl. "'Whose mind are you reading now?' he drawled affectionately. But he could not joke her off the subject. She took his strong hand in hers, tremulously, so much of it as her little hand could hold. "'I know something about that—that that last autumn.' she said, shrinking from words more definite. "'And I know that you only did—' "'What I had to,' he finished, very sadly, but sternly, too. "'Yes,' she asserted, keeping hold of his hand. "'I suppose that—lynching,' she almost whispered the word, "'is the only way. But when they had to die just for stealing horses, it seemed so wicked that this murderer—' "'Who can prove it?' asked the Virginian. "'But don't you know it?' I know a heap of things inside my heart, but that's not proven. There was only the body and the hoof-prints, and what folks guessed. He was never even arrested, the girl said. No, he helped elect the sheriff in that county. Then Molly ventured a step inside the border of her lover's reticence. I saw, she hesitated, just now I saw what you did. He returned to his caressing irony. You'll have me plumb scared if you keep on seeing things. You had your pistol ready for him. Why, I believe I did. It was mighty unnecessary. And the Virginian took out the pistol again, and shook his head over it, like one who has been caught in a blunder. She looked at him, and knew that she must step outside his reticence again. By love and her surrender to him their positions had been exchanged. He was not now, as through his long courting he had been, her half-obeying, half-refractory worshipper. She was no longer his half-indulgent, half-scornful superior. Her better birth and schooling, that had once been weapons to keep him at his distance, to bring her off victorious in their encounters, had given way before the onset of the natural man himself. She knew her cowboy lover, with all that he lacked, to be more than ever she could be, with all that she had. He was her worshipper still, but her master, too. Therefore now, against the baffling smile he gave her, she felt powerless, and once again a pang of yearning for her mother to be near her today shot through the girl. She looked from her untamed man to the untamed desert of Wyoming, 
and the town where she was to take him as her wedded husband. But for his sake she would not let him guess her loneliness. He sat on his horse, Monty, considering the pistol. Then he showed her a rattlesnake coiled by the roots of some sagebrush. "'Can I hit it?' he inquired. "'You don't often miss them,' said she, striving to be cheerful. "'Well, I'm told getting married unstrings some men.' He aimed, and the snake was shattered. "'Maybe it's too early yet for the unstringing to begin.' and with some deliberation he sent three more bullets into the snake. "'I reckon that's enough,' said he. "'Was not the first one?' "'Oh, yes, for the snake.' And then, with one leg crooked cowboy fashion across in front of his saddle-horn, he cleaned his pistol and replaced the empty cartridges. Once more she ventured near the line of his reticence. "'Has—has has Trampas seen you much lately?' "'Why, no, not for a right smart while. "'But I reckon he has not missed me.' "'The Virginian spoke this in his gentlest voice, "'but his rebuffed sweetheart turned her face away, "'and from her eyes she brushed a tear. "'He reined his horse Monty beside her, "'and upon her cheek she felt his kiss. "'You are not the only mind-reader,' said he, very tenderly and at this she clung to him and laid her head upon his breast. "'I had been thinking,' he went on, "'that the way our marriage is to be was the most beautiful way.' "'It is the most beautiful,' she murmured. He slowly spoke out his thought, as if she had not said this. "'No folks to stare, no fuss, no jokes and ribbons and best bonnets.' No public eye, nor talking of tongues, when most you want to hear nothing and say nothing? She answered by holding him closer. Just the Bishop of Wyoming to join us, and not even him after we're once joined. I did think that would be ahead of all ways to get married I have seen. He paused again, and she made no rejoinder. But we have left out your mother. She looked in his face with quick astonishment. It was as if his spirit had heard the cry of her spirit. "'That is nowhere near right,' he said. "'That is wrong.' "'She could never have come here,' said the girl. "'We should have gone there. I don't know how I can ask her to forgive me.' "'But it was not you!' cried Molly. "'Yes, because I did not object. I did not tell you we must go to her.' I missed the point, thinking so much about my own feelings. For you see, and I've never said this to you until now, your mother did hurt me. When you said you would have me after my years of waiting, and I wrote her that letter telling her all about myself, and how my family was not like yours, and, and all the rest I told her, why, you see, it hurt me never to get a word back from her except just messages through you for I had talked to her about my hopes and my failings. I had said more than ever I've said to you, because she was your mother. I wanted her to forgive me, if she could, and feel that maybe I could take good care of you after all. For it was bad enough to have her daughter quit her home to teach school out here on Bear Creek, bad enough without having me to come along and make it worse. I have missed the point in thinking of my own feelings. "'But it's not your doing!' repeated Molly. 
With his deep delicacy he had put the whole matter as a hardship to her mother alone. He had saved her any pain of confession or denial. "'Yes, it is my doing,' he now said. "'Shall we give it up?' "'Give what?' she did not understand. "'Why, the order we've got it fixed in. Plans are, well, they're no more than plans. I hate the notion of changing, but I hate hurting your mother more. Or any way I ought to hate it more. So we can shift, if you say so. It's not too late.' "'Shift?' she faltered. "'I mean we can go to your home now. "'We can start by the stage to-night. "'Your mother can see us married. "'We can come back and finish in the mountains "'instead of beginning in them. "'It'll be just merely shifting, you see.' "'He could scarcely bring himself to say this at all, "'yet he said it almost as if he were urging it. "'It implied a renunciation that he could hardly bear to think of, to put off his wedding day, the bliss upon whose threshold he stood after his three years of faithful battle for it, and that wedding journey he had arranged. For there were the mountains in sight, the woods and canyons where he had planned to go with her after the bishop had joined them, the solitudes where only the wild animals would be, besides themselves. His horses, his tent, his rifle, his rod— all were waiting ready in the town for their start to-morrow. He had provided many dainty things to make her comfortable. Well, he could wait a little more, having waited three years. It would not be what his heart most desired. There would be the public eye and the talking of tongues. But he could wait. The hour would come when he could be alone with his bride at last. And so he spoke as if he urged it. "'Never!' she cried. "'Never, never!' She pushed it from her. She would not brook such sacrifice on his part. Were they not going to her mother in four weeks? If her family had warmly accepted him—but they had not, and in any case it had gone too far, it was too late. She told her lover that she would not hear him, that if he said any more she would gallop into town separately from him and for his sake she would hide deep from him this loneliness of hers, and the hurt that he had given her in refusing to share with her his trouble with Trampas, when others must know of it. Accordingly they descended the hill slowly together, lingering to spin out these last miles long. Many rides had taught their horses to go side by side, and so they went now, the girl sweet and thoughtful in her sedate gray habit, and the man in his leathern chaps and cartridge belt and flannel shirt, looking gravely into the distance with the level gaze of the frontier. Having read his sweetheart's mind very plainly, the lover now broke his dearest custom. It was his code never to speak ill of any man to any woman. Men's quarrels were not for women's ears. In his scheme, good women were to know only a fragment of men's lives. He had lived many outlaw years, and his wide knowledge of evil made innocence doubly precious to him. But to-day he must depart from his code, having read her mind well. He would speak evil of one man to one woman, because his reticence had hurt her, and was she not far from her mother, and very lonely, do what he could? She should know the story of his quarrel, in language as light and casual as he could veil it with. 
He made an oblique start. He did not say to her, I'll tell you about this. You saw me get ready for Trampas, because I have been ready for him any time these five years. He began far off from the point, with that rooted caution of his, that caution which is shared by the primal savage and the perfected diplomat. "'There's certainly a right smart a difference between men and women,' he observed. "'You're quite sure?' she retorted. "'Ain't it fortunate that there's both, I mean?' "'I don't know about fortunate. Machinery could probably do all the heavy work for us without your help.' "'And who'd invent the machinery?' She laughed. "'We shouldn't need the huge noisy things you do. Our world would be a gentle one.' "'Oh, my gracious!' "'What do you mean by that?' "'Oh, my gracious! Get along, Monty. A gentle world all full of ladies.' "'Do you call men gentle?' inquired Molly. "'Now, it's a funny thing about that. Have you ever noticed a joke about fathers-in-law? There's just as many fathers as mothers-in-law, but which side are your jokes?' Molly was not vanquished. "'That's because the men write the comic papers,' said she. "'Hear that, Monty? The men write em. Well, if the ladies wrote a comic paper, I expect that might be gentle.' She gave up this battle in mirth, and he resumed, "'But don't you really reckon it's uncommon to meet a father-in-law flouncing around the house? As for gentle, once I had to sleep in a room next to ladies' temperance meeting. Oh, heavens! Well, I couldn't change my room, and the hotel man, he apologized to me next morning, said it didn't surprise him the husbands drank some.' Here the Virginian broke down over his own fantastic inventions, and gave a joyous chuckle in company with his sweetheart. "'Yes, there's a big heap of difference between men and women,' he said. "'Take that fellow and myself now.' "'Trampas?' said Molly, quickly serious. She looked along the road ahead, and discerned the figure of Trampas still visible on its way to town. The Virginian did not wish her to be serious— more than could be helped. "'Why, yes,' he replied, with a waving gesture at Trampas. "'Take him and me. He don't think much of me. How could he? And I expect he'll never. But you saw just now how it was between us. We were not a bit like a temperance meeting.' She could not help laughing at the twist he gave to his voice, and she felt happiness warming her, for in the Virginian's tone about Trampas was something now that no longer excluded her. Thus he began his gradual recital, in a cadence always easy and more and more musical with the native accent of the South. With the light turn he gave it, its pure ugliness melted into charm. No, he don't think anything of me. Once a man in the John Day Valley didn't think much, and by Canada de Oro I met another. It will always be so here and there, but Trampas beats em all, for the others have always expressed themselves, got shut of their poor opinion in the open air. You see, I had to explain myself to Trampas a right smart while ago, long before ever I laid my eyes on you. It was just nothing at all, a little matter of kiards in the days when I was apt to spend my money and my holidays pretty headlong. 
My gracious, what nonsensical times I've had. But I was apt to win at Kiard's, especially poker. And Trampas, he met me one night, and I expect he must have thought I looked kind of young. So he hated losing his money to such a young-looking man, and he took his way of saying as much. I had to explain myself to him plainly, so that he learned right away my age had got its growth. Well, I expect he hated that worse, having to receive my explanation with folks looking on at us publicly that away, and him without further ideas occurring to him at the moment. That's what started his poor opinion of me, not having ideas at the moment. And so the boys resumed their cards. I'd most forgot about it, but Trampas's memory is one of his strong points. Next thing, oh, it's a good while later, he gets to losin' flesh because Judge Henry gave me charge of him and some other punchers taking cattle. That's not next, interrupted the girl. Not? Why, don't you remember? she said, timid yet eager. Don't you? Blamed if I do. The first time we met? Yes, my memory keeps that, like I keep this. And he brought from his pocket her own handkerchief the token he had picked up at a river's brink when he had carried her from an overturned stage. "'We did not exactly meet, then,' she said. "'It was at that dance. I hadn't seen you yet, but Trampas was saying something horrid about me, and you said—you said, "'Rise on your legs, you polecat, and tell them you're a liar.' When I heard that, I think—I think it finished me. And crimson suffused Molly's countenance. I'd forgot, the Virginian murmured. Then sharply, how did you hear it? Mrs. Taylor, oh, well, a man would never have told a woman that. Molly laughed triumphantly. Then who told Mrs. Taylor? Being caught, he grinned at her. I reckon husbands are a special kind of man, was all that he found to say. Well, since you do know about that, it was the next move in the game. Trampas thought I had no call to stop him saying what he pleased about a woman who was nothing to me, then. But all women ought to be something to a man. So I had to give Trampas another explanation in the presence of folks looking on, and it was just like the Kiards. No ideas occurred to him again. And down goes his opinion of me some more. Well, I have not been able to raise it. There has been this and that and the other... You know most of the later doings yourself, and today is the first time I've happened to see the man since the doings last autumn. You seem to know about them, too. He knows I can't prove he was with that gang of horse thieves, and I can't prove he killed poor Shorty. But he knows I missed him awful close and spoiled his thieving for a while. So do you wonder he don't think much of me? But if I had lived to be twenty-nine years old like I am— and with all my chances made no enemy, I'd feel myself a failure. His story was finished. He had made her his confidant in matters he had never spoken of before, and she was happy to be thus much nearer to him. It diminished a certain fear that was mingled with her love of him. During the next several miles he was silent, and his silence was enough for her. Vermont sank away from her thoughts, and Wyoming held less of loneliness. 
they descended altogether into the map which had stretched below them, so that it was a map no longer, but earth with growing things and prairie dogs sitting upon it, and now and then a bird flying over it. And after a while she said to him, "'What are you thinking about?' "'I have been doing sums. Figured in hours it sounds right short. Figured in minutes it boils up into quite a mess.' Twenty by sixty is twelve hundred. Put that into seconds, and you get seventy-two thousand seconds. Seventy-two thousand. Seventy-two thousand seconds yet before we get married. Seconds? To think of its having come to seconds? I am thinking about it. I'm chopping sixty of them off every minute. With such chopping time wears away. More miles of the road lay behind them, and in the virgin wilderness the scars of new-scraped water-ditches began to appear, and the first wire fences. Next they were passing cabins and occasional fields, the outposts of habitation. The free road became wholly imprisoned, running between unbroken stretches of barbed wire. Far off to the eastward a flowing column of dust marked the approaching stage, bringing the bishop, probably, for whose visit here they had timed their wedding. The day still brimmed with heat and sunshine, but the great daily shadow was beginning to move from the feet of the Bowleg Mountains outward toward the town. Presently they began to meet citizens. Some of these knew them and nodded, while some did not and stared. Turning a corner into the town's chief street, where stood the hotel, the bank, the drug store, the general store, and the seven saloons, they were hailed heartily. Here were three friends, Honey Wigan, Scipio Lemoyne, and Lynn McLean, all desirous of drinking the Virginian's health, if his lady, would she mind? The three stood grinning, with their hats off, but behind their gaiety the Virginian read some other purpose. "'We'll all be very good,' said Honey Wiggin. "'Pretty good,' said Lynn. "'Good,' said Scipio. "'Which is the honest man?' inquired Molly, glad to see them. "'Not one,' said the Virginian. "'My old friends scare me when I think of their ways.' "'It's being engaged scares you,' retorted Mr. McLean. "'Marriage restores your courage, I find.' "'Well, I'll trust all of you,' said Molly. He's going to take me to the hotel, and then you can drink his health as much as you please. With a smile to them she turned to proceed, and he let his horse move with hers, but he looked at his friends. Then Scipio's bleached blue eyes narrowed to a slit, and he said what they had all come out on the street to say. "'Don't change your clothes!' "'Oh,' protested Molly, "'isn't he rather dusty and countrified?' But the Virginian had taken Scipio's meaning. Don't change your clothes. Innocent Molly appreciated these words no more than the average reader who reads a masterpiece, complacently unaware that its style differs from that of the morning paper. Such was Scipio's intention, wishing to spare her from alarm. So at the hotel she let her lover go with a kiss, and without a thought of Trampas. She in her room unlocked the possessions which were there waiting for her, and changed her dress. 
End of chapter 35, part 1